1: The Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. Approximately one million Canadians have a diagnosis of an eating disorder, and recovering from an eating disorder is different for everyone, but does involve overcoming mental physical, and emotional barriers. Our guest today is Dr. David Wiss. Dr. Wiss became a registered dietitian-nutritionist in 2013 and founded Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice of RDNs specializing in treating eating disorders as well as substance use. He earned his PhD in public health with a minor in health psychology from UCLA, by investigating links between adverse childhood experiences and mental health outcomes among socially disadvantaged men. Dr. Wiss's newest venture is his app called Wise Mind Nutrition. Wise Mind Nutrition delivers educational content using nutrition and lifestyle medicine to improve mental health outcomes. On this show, we talk about how adverse childhood experiences are linked to food disorders, why weight and body image are tied often to trauma, why nutrition is important for mental health recovery, and so many more things relevant to this topic. Do stay tuned with us. We will be back in just a few minutes to speak with Dr. Wiss.
0: You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, Hosted by Kathy Biasi.
1: Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, today's show has been recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. Dr. Wiss, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to a great
2: conversation with you today.
1: Oh, uh, you know, me too. This is not a topic that we've covered uh, on the show. We've had over 300 shows and you are the pioneer for our show in this topic of food addiction, food disorders. Really, really interesting. The connection that you make between actual nutrition protocols and disorders. So cannot wait to get into that. Tell us about yourself, how you got into this field, why you're passionate about it.
2: Yes. Thank you. I'm from Los Angeles and uh, I grew up not clear about what I wanted to do. Uh, uh, I think that's pretty normal. And during my undergraduate years, I was more of a counterculture kind of person. I, I, I was. My mother's uh, was a hippie, so I found the rave culture in the late '90s and <laughs> the early 2000s. And I kind of went off the path for a few years and found uh, a, a return to health in 2006. And I just changed a lot. I changed a lot of people that I associated with and I changed what I ate and I started moving and getting sunlight and drinking water. And I personally had a profound alteration in, in in my uh, energy and everyone noticed it. It it was profound. I mean, my uh, anxiety went away, my skin cleared up, and it was very clear that I had a calling to uh, uh, do some work in the health space. And I found that nutrition was profound, for my own personal mental health journey. And I became very interested in the connection between nutrition and mental health. And I realized that it was kind of an untapped space. Uh, I ended up getting into a master's program to become a a registered dietitian. And I did a master's thesis on nutrition and substance abuse. And I learned Mm -hmm. about uh, eating behaviors associated with uh, addictions. And I learned about eating disorders. And I started a clinical practice called nutrition and recovery, working with people one-on-one uh, with uh, disorders of eating and gut issues and uh, behavioral issues that needed some very specific type of support. It wasn't just nutrition support, it was recovery support. So I'm passionate about both. And the the business was very successful. And I I, I Trained a couple other dietitians to work alongside with me, and we started bringing our our groups and our one-on-one to treatment centers here in Southern California. So um, I was you know really one of the first voices to say nutrition needs to be talked about in mental health treatment in addiction treatment. And this was right around the time when there was an explosion of research around gut health, which really started to make the case of why nutrition was important, starting to understand the mechanisms. And an explosion of research around food addiction, which caught my attention because I work with people in uh, addiction recovery and many people would report loss of control eating. And it was a controversial uh, uh, area and has even probably become even more controversial over the years. Um, But I always thought it was an important conversation to have. And I I wrote several papers about um, ultra processed food addiction and really trying to educate the eating disorder community about the existence of reward-based eating and the role of dopamine and neurochemistry in the eating process. And I've also, you know, been educating people in the food addiction space about eating disorders, which is, you know, restrained eating, restrictive patterns, diet culture, weight stigma. So so yeah, there's these polarized fields and I'm I'm the guy that's committed to bridging the gap and having conversations right here in the gray area at what I like to call the wise mind.
1: It's uh, so many different things you're drawing on and trying to pull together. Um, You talk about, one of the big things you talk about is trauma-informed nutrition. What exactly is that? Thank you. Yeah, there's
2: a lot of ways to approach that term, and it's gotten a lot of attention. Trauma-informed is sort of becoming the buzzword. Um, Trauma-informed nutrition um, can be about acknowledging the role that trauma has in altering one's biology. So um, I I did my PhD at UCLA um, in public health with a minor in health psychology. My uh, dissertation was on adverse childhood experiences and how they affect mental health. And a big part of my, uh, actual dissertation, the literature review was a deep dive into all the different ways that trauma can affect biology. Um, we call it the biological embedding of adversity. And hmm. so I think that to be trauma informed, one needs to understand how adversity can get under the skin and affect health. So for example, the immune system increasing, uh, Inflammatory markers in a real subtle way, people that have trauma have higher allostatic loads, um, mm-hmm. changes in the brain to make someone more sensitive to reward. So increasing the likelihood of addiction, like processes. And there's also, you know, some other structural and functional changes in the brain. Um, you know, for example, with hippocampal volume, etc. Uh, we also have the HPA access. We know that, um, you know, the, 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 the cortisol curves can start looking different for people that have been exposed to trauma. Um, And there's, there's more, you know, there's uh, epigenetics, there's the microbiome, we've got telomeres, there's like close to 10 different known pathways linking trauma to health. So I believe that to be trauma informed, one needs to understand some of these mechanisms, But I think when most people think about being trauma-informed, it's more about being someone who makes a different set of assumptions. So instead of assuming that all health is a choice, we assume that people's uh, health often reflects um, some of the barriers uh, uh, that they face emotionally, psychologically. And I think that nutrition has been very traumatizing for a Mm -hmm. lot of people. They've come to see well-intentioned, professionals who might put them on a diet or make comments that 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 you know are reminiscent of their early childhood, give them unrealistic things to do. And so trauma-informed nutrition is about safety, trust, building rapport, not making it about numbers per se. Um, that's a big part of the work that I do is trying to move people toward a qualitative approach to nutrition rather than quantitative. And it really is about the therapeutic relationship. So when when someone comes to see me and they get a sense that I understand what they've been through, I understand the biology, I understand the psychology, we can talk about it in their social context in their lives, they feel safe. And it's no longer me taking the lead as the uh, person with all the answers. I'm more uh, co-creating a path with the person, right? As a as as someone that's walking shoulder to shoulder with them and curious about their journey rather than uh you know the expert that knows everything and mm-hmm. calls them non-compliant when they don't do what i say
1: right well if uh, we're if we're trying to keep it with you know the aspects of trauma within the nutrition space i mean once we extend that we could we could have a conversation for hours and still not get anywhere but within the actual nutrition space are you speaking of trauma that impacts people's perception of proper nutrition and body weight? Or are you talking about a trauma and the, the way people are dealing with the trauma is through nutrition? To me, it seems like two very divergent pathways. Um, can they be treated the same way within your scope? Or do you need to know which direction to go off in? Such
2: a great question. And I, and I think it's so wise to try to be all, all encompassing um, when you think about the wide range of ways that trauma can affect someone. But I, I think that people assume that being trauma-informed means you need to like go there with the person and talk about their trauma. And that's not necessarily the case, right? Mm-hmm. It's just an understanding that um, the trauma that people have experienced in life, whether it be early on in the first 18 years or complex trauma that has ensued uh, throughout the life course, um, it affects their uh, relationship with self, with body, and it affects their behaviors. And that that certainly points to uh, food. I think the majority of the trauma research in the mental health space has linked trauma to addictions. So, you know, there's tons of studies that have shown people that have uh, PTSD or other forms of adversity in the household or in the community, um, complex trauma, et cetera, are way more likely to have addictions. Um, And that's uh, uh, based on neurochemistry, susceptibility. And then you could transfer that to eating behavior, understanding that uh, uh, food also impacts the uh, reward the same way uh, drugs do. And then of course we have people that experience trauma that have uh, very restrictive eating disorders and, and don't wanna eat at all. So there's a lot of pathways when you mix in the kind of biology and 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 the thinking. Um, so yeah, I, I like the way you think about these divergent pathways and I think really good trauma work kind of brings it all together.
1: Can there be a connection between the type of nutrition disorder and the pathway to the trauma that has led to it. So for instance, if someone has, we'll go really simple, a a sugar addiction um, versus someone who will not intake adequate calories, can they be on the same path from trauma? Or would you say that one is indicative of one and one is indicative of another? Great
2: question. I I think... That um, it would be difficult to try to make those links. Okay, I think the efforts that we've that I've kind of done is to think less about the outcome and more about the exposure. So for example, does childhood sexual abuse link to certain types of behavioral health disorders compared to emotional neglect, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, we know that crimes to the body, physical abuse, sexual abuse, et cetera, uh, uh, have more likelihood of being, biologically embedded and leading to, you know, the three uh, behavioral health issues that I've been interested in, which is substance use disorders, food addiction, and eating disorders. And they often cluster and co-occur and they can um, all happen over time. Someone could start with a substance use disorder, get sober, end up with a food addiction, and then develop an eating disorder. Someone could start with an eating disorder and then... uh, Eventually, move on to a substance use disorder and then have food addiction symptoms. So, when we think about those three things, it's really uh, muddy because they cluster and co occur with each other. Um, But yeah, I'm more interested in trying to understand how different types of trauma might increase the likelihood of different types of outcomes rather than thinking at the outcome level first and being like, what led to this? Because there's so many possible factors there.
1: Well, why is weight and body image? so often tied to these traumas?
2: Great question. Um, There's a couple answers, you know, and I I, I actually wrote a paper a few years ago called The Limitations of the Protective Measure Theory. There was a a psychodynamic theory in the 80s and 90s, which explained how certain people that were exposed to certain forms of abuse, uh, child sexual abuse, uh, for example, um, have... M- m- more associations with their body type and the trauma. So there was an original study that showed people who, um, were, were victims when they lost weight. Um, they felt really uncomfortable because there was something about the body weight that made them, uh, feel less of a target for future revictimization. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was super controversial. Um, uh they call it barrier weight, right? That people carry additional weight uh uh as a way of preventing um that kind of attention. And I had a lot of clients tell me that over the years, um, that their therapist told them that and that they thought maybe that was true. And I asked someone one time, do you believe it's true? And um they said no. And that's when it's I started digging really deep. And so I I believe um that um trauma gets underneath the skin and makes someone more susceptible to reward-based behaviors, including food. Okay. So this is the controversial area of food addiction. There is a strong link between childhood sexual abuse and BMI, and it could be barrier weight. It could actually be people that are uncomfortable in the smaller body for whatever reason, but it's more likely to be uh, pathways of food addiction and disordered eating. Um, And and it's biologically plausible that someone would have alterations in their reward and end up being more hedonic with food um, and having more um, uh, reward-based eating as a way of uh, quote unquote coping and reducing negative affect. So emotional eating, food addiction, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, But yeah, there's a whole world of possibilities with that particular type of trauma in the body. I think most people that have significant trauma have a disconnection between their mind and their body. That's why they have a hard time meditating, a hard time doing yoga. It's difficult to engage in mind body processes. Um, the vagus nerve might not be functioning properly, you know? So there's a lot there. And um, when people get full treatment, uh, which includes, you know, therapy and some mind body work, contemplative practices, They do some really good nutrition work. Um, They can get some really good recovery from trauma at the biological and psychological level. And I I think that in the future, we'll definitely be able to say more about how nutrition can improve PTSD, how it can improve trauma. We don't have studies yet, uh, but what I do have is clinical experience working with a lot of quote unquote trauma survivors.
1: intuitively uh, that makes sense because second half we're going to talk about the gut microbiome and it's still it's um it's linked to mental health and and physiological traits that can be altered to improve mental health but there, there you know it belies you know we unpackage all of this but there has to be some area and it may not be what you are actually working with but if you could speak to genetics you know, the resiliency of some people versus um, the susceptibility of others. Do yes. you see that in your practice? Yes. And
2: I, I, I've i done a, a, a fair amount of genetic testing with people, but none that tracks with the theories I'm going to describe. Um, we do know that two people can be exposed to the exact same trauma. They could have been in the same car accident they could have had the same parents and been at the same place at the same time. And uh, one of them, as a result of the trauma has biological changes that make them more susceptible to psychiatric disorders and uh, uh, poor mental health. And the other could actually have a uh, more resilient phenotype. Okay. So uh, uh, we've got the genotype, which is the genetics and the phenotype, which is the expression of it. So, Um, One of my favorite uh, papers in understanding this is called The Theory of Latent Vulnerability. You know, why is it that someone could uh, end up being better off after trauma? And I've seen it described as a stealing effect where someone gets harder and they become more, uh, I think, resilient is the best word. And I don't think we've uh, disentangled all of that science quite yet. But it's very fascinating and very true, and uh, not super common. But there are some people that are exposed to a good amount of adversity that have some adaptations that make them stronger. But as a general rule, uh, tr- trauma usually leads to some alterations that have negative implications at some point.
1: I, I think, you know, one of the brilliant parts of your conversation here is really to elucidate the. The fact, the belying fact of all of this is that there's no one way to treat somebody, nor should there be when it comes to that, nor should we look at somebody in a particular pigeonholed way when it comes to food disorders. Because the minutiae and the number of factors that go into one person's own journey Cannot be tackled with a good meal plan. And I think, you know, that is a key, key piece to what you're talking about because I don't think we understand food disorders and diseases. As we should. I think we place a social stigma on people who are like that. And I don't think that that is the proper way that we should be addressing this. I know mental health space is becoming more and more talked about, but when you're brilliant enough to bring in the piece of nutrition, which is my home too, I think that's when you're going to hit pay dirt. Everybody, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes to continue on with this great conversation.
0: You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria, Canada a Catholic voice, wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email THH at RadioMaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi.
1: Welcome back to the Health Hub, everybody. We are having a great conversation here with Dr. David Wiss. Um... We've elucidated a lot of things, uh, small steps, of course, in a a short one-hour podcast, but I do want to spend the second half talking about nutrition, where its role can possibly be within food disorders. Let's start talking about the gut health piece, its biological, and its psychological connections to mental health. So I'll, I'll let you address that however you are most comfortable
2: absolutely and it's it's such a uh, fascinating area that so many different disciplines have been able to move in on from from microbiologists to you know psychiatrists and nutritionists and it affects everything so everyone's interested in it. it's so great to see all the research happening there's still so much work that needs to be done um but i can speak broadly on the on the science of it and you know how it's um you know, important in my clinical practice. I think that people got really excited about the gut microbiome when, you know, it was discovered that, you know, these microbes were uh, part of the process of uh, creating neurotransmitters, right? And this was like the big Mm -hmm. mental health conversation serotonin produced in the gut, dopamine produced in the gut. And uh, that certainly caught my attention, but I knew that there was way more to it uh, you know, just because something is in the gut doesn't mean that it crosses the blood-brain barrier. And I became very fascinated in the concept of bacterial diversity, which, you know, really points to, um, you know, an ideal gut environment. And by the way, we don't actually know what an ideal environment is. And that's the major shortcoming of the microbiota research. We don't have a clear picture of what would be ideal because it varies uh, in different regions of the world. Okay. So we do know that the optimal gut environment has a wide range of bacterial species and that that signals health in many ways. Um, uh, I've been interested in the interaction between the gut microbiota and the immune system. So for example, if there is a loss of beneficial microbes and um, there are not a, uh, there's not a diverse environment, it can lead to uh, permeability at the intestinal barrier, right? Some people call it leaky gut, some people call it intestinal permeability. But once the uh, gut environment is compromised and it can be compromised from a wide range of reasons from stress to environmental exposures, to medication, to poor diet, to alcohol. I mean, there's a long list of things that can affect gut microbiota. Uh, But once it becomes less diverse, you're setting up an environment that has more room for inflammatory cascades. And, you know, I believe that the immune system is going to be able to explain a lot of the links between the gut and the brain. There's an emerging field called psychoneuroimmunology, which really looks at how um, the uh, immune system interacts with the blood-brain barrier. And um, I've seen some really interesting data to show that you know, cytokines, um, you know, they can signal at the level of the brain barrier, potentially cross. And we have this new term, leaky brain. And uh, we're looking at potentially, um, uh, I think the best way to describe it is neuroinflammation. So if someone has uh, gut issues that are pro-inflammatory, we're looking at uh, brain issues becoming pro-inflammatory. And I think this is such an easier way to understand it. Uh there's other mechanisms you know through the nervous system, like I mentioned earlier, the vagus nerve there's a lot of pathways linking the gut and the brain, but I do think that inflammatory mediators in the immune system is the easiest way to make sense out of the gut brain access um If someone has a lot of inflammation and it's crossing the blood brain barrier it's gonna affect mood it's gonna affect mental health, and this is why um from what I understand, we have such strong links between ultra-processed food and depression, as well as anxiety.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I know you say that this is a new uh, area that there's are so many unknowns, but for me, in my practice, when I can talk about this, I think you know it gives people an area of hope because it's not. I am insane or I am causing this or I am. So when you can make physiological connections to the mental space and then give a pathway to improve that through nutrition, you're giving people hope. And once hope starts to rise, the doors are blown open. They're just blown open for people. And again, back to this, this idea that this is what you're cultivating. I think, you know, you with a bigger platform to speak on is, is wonderful because it's, you know, it's what a lot of us are doing in our own small practices off to the side. So thanks for being that voice. Um, Someone walks into your, your uh, practice. What do you do to start off with? Is it, here's your nutrition protocol. I'm sure it's a large intake. I know you have an app. Let's hear all about it.
2: Yeah. So I, I have someone fill out a bunch of forms for me online before we even start. So I can look at some of their behavioral health challenges, their mental health scores. I'm looking at eating disorder symptoms, somatic symptoms, food addiction symptoms. So I get a really good sense of where someone's at before I even talk to them. And then after doing a very comprehensive intake process, um, I will... um usually start with looking at the food group system. And I have my own system. I have six food groups. The first is fruit, which could be fresh, frozen or dried vegetables. And I want to focus on both cooked and raw vegetables, grains. And I try to emphasize whole grains because of their fiber. I'm a big believer in whole grains like farro, barley, Mm -hmm. buckwheat, even though some people say that's not a grain.
1: That's a pleasure to hear, I have to say. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm really like
2: I'm shocked at, you know, this sort of anti-grain movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of, in my opinion, it's 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 connected to, you know, low carb and vanity related stuff. It's like, yeah, sure, you can cut out a lot of carb carbohydrates and starches for, you know, appearance related issues. But when it comes down to some of these whole grains like quinoa, like these are some of the most nutritious foods on the planet. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of high fiber, whole grains. Um, Dairy could be either cow, goat or sheep or a dairy alternative. I'm totally fine with either one. They all count as a, as a D in my system. And then we have protein, not the macronutrient, but pure sources of protein, either from animal products, including eggs or, um, some of the meat alternatives that are out there. As long as they're pure proteins, we can count it that way, even a protein powder. And then I have a category for beans, nuts, and seeds, huge advocate for beans, nuts, and seeds. And that's why I created them as their own category so that um, people will learn to emphasize it. Uh, There's a couple foods that don't fit into the food group system, and that's coconut, avocados, And olives, and those are sources of fat, but I don't use that as a food group system because it confuses people. So I've got my six food groups. And one of the most basic ways to start a nutrition intervention is to try to get someone to eat foods that are from those food groups and to try to get all food groups every single day. And then, you know, that's a really, really easy place to start. And, you know, in the Wise Mind Nutrition app, I, I built in this system and I built in a hunger fullness scale. So, so after someone meets with me on the first thing, we'll open up the app. They'll set some intentions for themselves. Maybe they have intentions around drinking water or using supplements or their bowel movements or movement or positive social connections. And they set some intentions for themselves. And then start logging their food. I like people to log their food when they're working with me so I can see what's going on and offer ways to improve what they're doing rather than try to give someone something from scratch. I I haven't given someone a meal plan uh, my entire career. I've never believed in like a prescriptive approach. I've always believed in like, let's take a look at what you're doing and see how we can improve it. That makes so much more sense to me. So someone can take a photo of their food, indicate which food groups were present. My system sort of encourages three food groups, three out of those six, whenever someone eats. And uh, they might have a meal timing sort of strategy to create some consistency, start logging their food with a photo, figuring out what food groups were there, what what, what was the hunger score before and the fullness score after. And I like using this because It definitely promotes more interoceptive awareness connection between the mind and the body, helps people be in tune with their internal cues of hunger and fullness. I think it's important. Not everyone loves the hunger fullness scale, uh, but we try to use it whenever we can. And then, yeah, there's an opportunity to add some thoughts, feelings, behaviors, any additional details, et cetera. And then at the end of the day, the app will total up how many times you ate from each of the food groups. And it'll ask you if you met your intentions for the day. It'll ask you what you could have done better. What corrective measures can you take tomorrow? So it, it, it kind of moves someone into a daily process of reflecting on their own health behaviors. And what I really like about it is the food group distribution. So I can look at someone's uh, food group distribution for the day. So for example, if it says F2V3, that's fruit two, vegetable three, grain two, dairy two, protein two, and then bean nut seed three, right? Like I I can look at that and be like, wow, this is a fantastic, balanced, uh, probably anti-inflammatory approach to eating based on eating foods that are categorizable into the food group system. Um, And that's a really good place to start, just getting all the food groups daily. From there, you've got a baseline. And you know, with a baseline, you can learn like, all right, what do we need to dial up? What do we need to dial down? What testing do we need to do to figure out, you know, sources of inflammation in your body, organic acid testing, food sensitivity testing? What supplements might we uh, add to the regimen? And I think a big part of the work that I do is counseling, working with people that have challenges. Sometimes people have major depressive disorder and it's very difficult to get to the grocery store. What are the ways that we can, um, you know, create, strategies and and positive energy and positive reinforcement to celebrate the food thing, um, get back in the kitchen, start cooking again, make things simple, easy, and fun, and uh, really try to talk about nutrition uh, differently than people have heard it talked about before. So that's a really big part of the work that I do. I think people have expectations that when they come in, they're going to get weighed We're going to talk about macronutrients and I'm going to give them a calorie prescription. Mm -hmm. And when they find out that we're not doing any of that, they're like, oh, this is different. This is more of a healing journey. This is nutrition for mental health. And then the app is just loaded with meditations, cooking classes, instruction videos on uh, this nutrition for mental health revolution, right? Uh, We talk about, you know, when to eat, what to eat, how to eat how much to eat, how to think about food. It's all wrapped up in this cozy messaging of positive body image and helping someone build their own nutritional identity, dropping out of diet culture, uh, but still allowing themselves to be deliberate and intentional about their food and remembering um That it's what we do on a daily basis over long periods of time that matters. And consistency is the key, but there's always going to be uncertainty. There's always going to be, you know, trials and tribulations in life. And just learning how to be neutral around all Mm -hmm. of it and getting to uh, awesome new chapter energy.
1: And perfection is not the goal. Uh, you know, I I almost think that the term nutrition and dieting should be replaced to how to eat well, uh, you know, just simple things. Because I think once we start labeling our breakfast, lunch, dinner as our nutrition process, it becomes a little bit more of a medicative speak. Um, and I think, you know, getting people back into the kitchen, you know, when I work with somebody, it, 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 same idea, are you going to make me dump my pantry and fill it with tofu and kale? It's like, no, where are you at? How can right. we make what you love a little bit better? And I think, you know, in the long run, people may initially want the hard, hard line nutrition, the hard line protocols, but in the long run, food is a part of our life. It's a part of our social setting. And I think when people can be educated on just simple choices at a restaurant, you're making a lot, a lot of headway. And then while you're doing it and you're educating them on the underlying physiological Breakthroughs and you know positive improvements. Um, it's just a recipe for great things. It's a recipe for great things. Do you work with people online, or are you an in-person counselor only? I have an office in
2: West Los Angeles, but I work with people online all over the world. I'm very fortunate to be able to do uh, this work anywhere. And, uh, you know, we can do testing in most States in the United States and the virtual work is fantastic. I love it, but I also love it when people are able to actually come in and sit on the couch and, um, it's great to have a mix of both.
1: Now, if someone was doing some virtual work and let's back up this way, your app, that must be in coordination with obviously working with you. So people understand how it works.
2: No, not necessarily. I built the app as a tool to augment my clinical practice and for the other dietitians that work alongside with me. Um, but it's really built for anyone to use without a clinician. Um, and it's also built for other clinicians to use with their clients. So, uh, you know, and and I'm finalizing some of the features we literally just launched, you know, earlier this month and, um, we're in the Apple store and about to be in the Google Android store. Um, there's a couple of features that we're going to release uh, ASAP, which is the Clinician Connect f- feature. So, any coach or um, a dietitian, and especially mental health professionals, I really built it so that therapists, psychiatrists could encourage their patients and clients to log their food, do a nightly review and practitioners will have access to their food logs so that you could really see what's going on with someone and be able to offer some advice. And you know, the, the app is filled with free features. So the food log is free. There's an introductory program that's free. Uh, a coach or clinician could view one of their clients for free. It's all in there to make sure that people like it. There's no There's no upsells uh, until you until you know you want to work the program, you know you want to build it into your practice. So I want to encourage everyone to just check it out, download it, uh, check out the food log, watch a few videos, see if it's something that resonates
1: and see if it's something that you want to use personally, professionally, or both. Wonderful. If someone wanted to reach out or find out more about you, your app, your practice, where would they look? Yeah, the practice website is Nutrition and Recovery. That's Nutrition and Recovery. Dot
2: .com the app website is wise and we have social media for wise mind nutrition at uh, instagram wise mind nutrition youtube wise nutrition tiktok uh really exciting uh, to to be on tiktok as well and um, yeah just the app store uh, go check it out i'm also on instagram at dr david Wiss. that's my personal account where I share a little bit about my life and my family.
1: um, And I, I love interacting with people on social media. Wonderful. It's been a real pleasure having this conversation with you and meeting you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.